Thanks for joining us today. We'd love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. We encourage you to share your story with us at info at fellowshipgj.com. Also, if God is using this ministry to impact you, we want to encourage you to partner with us financially. You can do that online at fellowshipgj.com. Pick the giving option that works best for you and help us to continue to bring the message of Christ to our community and beyond. Again, thanks for joining us and enjoy today's message. So I want to start with a couple of true and false questions. And when I give you this statement, I want you to boldly answer true or false. I want to hear you say it like you absolutely know the answer. I want a bold answer, whether you're confused about the question or not. There will be no prizes if you get it right, but there will be some humiliation and public shaming if you get it wrong. I still want a bold answer from you. First question. We are living right now in the most desperately evil era in all of human history. Now, is the answer to that true or false? On the side screen, false. You say, well, is that your opinion? Well, let me read you the scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 said on the side screen, the Lord saw the great wickedness across the earth and that every inclination of mankind's heart was only evil continually. All right, I want, just humor me a minute. I want you to have a very sweet, kind thought about a family member. Think about them. If they've been staying at your house for a while and you can't come up with one, try a pet. Think about a pet. Oh, that's a sweet, okay, got it? Okay, that is proof that you are not just filled with, you are not only evil continually. You're not, not that by a long shot. So prior to the flood, the Bible says that mankind was only filled with evil thoughts continually. There was nothing good in his life, in his heart whatsoever. That was prior to the flood. Here's the second question, because you did so good on that one. Here's another one. Now, this one is exaggerated to an obviously easy answer. So here we go. Is, and I want you to be bold. I, I know your, your confidence is shaken. The average lifespan of a human being on earth prior to the flood was 800 and how many? 57 years. Now, is the correct answer to that true or false? Oh, did they put it up there? Okay, true, yeah. Very good, wow, and I am so impressed. That's good. That is true. God was really good in the Bible of letting us know how many years people lived on this earth. So if you lived here and you were in the Bible, he pretty much recorded when you were born, who you were born to. He also recorded how many kids you had, how many kids they had, and on and on and on, you know, in the Old Testament. But he would also tell us how many years they lived. And prior to the flood, take a look at this list. Here's Adam. And here's some of his descendants, 939, Methuselah, 969, 912. And you go down there and look at Enoch. Enoch is like 365 years old when he dies. So like, man, he was cut short, wasn't he? Man. But take a look at Enoch because this is a really cool story. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, verse 23, Enoch lived 365 years and walking in close fellowship with God. And then one day... He disappeared because God just took him. So in other words, he's out walking in the evening with God, talking to him about everything going on in his life. It got a little late, and God said, well, you know, you're a little closer to my house than you are yours, so just come on. Just come on home. <laughs> wow. So right before God had Noah build the ark, and sent the floodwaters to cover the earth because of this tremendous amount of evil that was going on, he decided that man was no longer going to live into their eight and nine hundreds. And he tells us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, this is right before the flood. He says, the Lord said, my spirit will not always put up with humans for such a long time. In other words, they're driving him nuts. Living in the flesh... For they are only mortal flesh, 
And in the future, he says, their normal lifespan will be no more than how many years? So way to go, people, before the flood. You've kept all of us from living into our 800s and 900s. If it were not be for their lifestyle, then we might still be living 800 and 900. But what are you going to do living 800 and 900 years? Does anybody really want to do that? Does anybody even want to make it to 120? I had a 40-year-old behind stage tell me, My good Lord, I don't want to live that long. I'm already hurting at 40. But imagine this if you would. I mean, people back in that day. Right now, can you imagine your kids trying to buy you a birthday gift at 812? <laughs> Some of you are 50, and your kids had no idea what to get you for Christmas. Nothing. And at 812, can you imagine that? Your son brings in another bottle of Old Spice cologne, and you say, <laughs> thank you, son. Put it over there with the other 700 bottles. Thank you very much. God bless you. So then after the flood, after the flood, Here's the timeline. Noah, by the way, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 10 that all the nations of the earth descended from this, these families after the great flood. So Noah and his wife, his three sons, and his three, those three wives of his sons went onto this boat, and all the nations and nationalities of the world came from that one family. Huh. And notice, if you would, on the side screen, Noah, there's, there's, he's 950. So Noah's family goes on and lives because God pronounced this after their family. So his family and his close descendants are like living still in, you know, up here in the big numbers. And all of a sudden, you see the numbers start dropping down. And notice, if you would, all of a sudden, there's six and there's two, 239, 230, 148. Look at that. And we're down there to Abraham, 175, Sarah, Sarah, uh, 127. Wow. And by the way, do you know how old Noah was when he fathered his first child? 500 years old. So, uh, fellas, I mean, are you with me on this? When we get to heaven, we got to give Noah a high five on that one, don't you? 500 years, Noah. Wow. That was awesome. And then we get to Solomon. You remember Solomon? Solomon, he was smart, wisest man that ever lived. Hey, Solomon wrote the Proverbs when he was in his 40s. Solomon wrote Song of Solomon, love story, all about love, when he was in his 20s. And Solomon wrote that grouchy book in the Old Testament called the book of Ecclesiastes when he was an old dude. But Solomon did a whole lot of things in his life. How many years do you think Solomon lived, considering the fact he lived a very long time? What would you all say? Shoot a number up. Oh, what, 80. 80. Who was Solomon's dad? David. King David. Oh, my gosh. We're talking about giant killing, lion stopping, bear slapping David. He did a lot, didn't he? He was the second king of Israel. Saul was the first. He made a mess of it. God set them all up. There's jealousy in there. David comes in with his mighty man. David got the mighty 30. 30 men that just had to do anything for David. David did a lot of stuff. He got the David and Bathsheba story. Of course, it's a little scandal in the middle of it. But David had wives. He had a lot of kids, a lot of stuff going on. How long do you think David lived? And holler it out. Let's see it. 70. Now, did David get cut short? Do you think God looked at David's life and said, whoa, man, you didn't get, you know, what everybody else got in 70 years? You know, that's not very much, you know. Well, let's see what the Bible says about the life of David. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, King David was now what? And no matter how many blankets covered him, he could not keep what? David was very old. At how old? Oh, my can I challenge you to do something? Walk up to a fellow church member tonight, male or female, who is 70 years of age, and just tell them, oh, my gosh, you are very old. <laughs> See how that works for you. But did not God call a 70-year-old child of his who passionately loved him? Very old at 70. Now, 600 years, a little bit further down the road, 600 years before Christ, the Holy Spirit inspired a writer in the Psalms to give us this verse in Psalms 90, verse 10. Seventy years are given to us. 
whoa, 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 what, eight or 900, now we're down to 120, and now we're down to 70. 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon, they disappear, and we fly away. Well, let me ask you a question concerning all the nations of the world. What do you think the average lifespan on the planet is today? According to the United Nations, the average lifespan of the world today is 70 years and 70 months. 68.2 for men because we live with women that are going 73 point. Two years. Well, there's got to be something to that. I mean, now I want you to do the math with me and track this for a second. If the average lifespan of a person on this planet today, and you know what, the United States is doing a little bit better than that, but we're not doing much better than that. But if the average lifespan is 70, that means that if somebody lives to be 80, somebody's dying at 60. And if somebody lives to be 90, Somebody's dying at 50. Are you tracking the math? If it's going to stay an average of 70, with all of the health benefits, all of the billions of dollars poured into insurance, poured into medical research, poured into health care, let me share something with you. It's still never changing from 70. It never will. Okay. That encouraged you. All right. And then it says, that verse, Psalms 90, verse 10 said, but even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon, they disappear. What disappears? The pain, the trouble, the years? And the answer is yes. Now, if the best years are that way, and I walk up to you and I ask you, man, how's your year going? How's your life going? And you say, super great, no problems, no struggles at all. That tells me you're faith talking. And I like faith talking. I think you ought to do it. But a more accurate answer might be, I'm winning this fight and I'm learning from it so I can be more prepared for the one that I know is coming after it. Because what did it say? It didn't say the good years. It said even the best years are full of trouble. And then it says they're all going to disappear, the pain, the trouble, and the years When's that going to happen, Lord? And God says, soon. Soon. You see, because God loves us so much, one of the best parts about this life down here that he has given us is that it is relatively short. It's relatively short. And if living down here on this earth was so wonderful, living in the flesh was so great, he would have just left the whole thing alone. But the longer people live in the flesh on this earth, the longer we keep repeating things and get bored with the things that we now have, the worse we get. And he knew it. Now, with our life here, though, being so short and it passing by so quickly, I, uh, and knowing that God wants us to live this incredibly blessed life, it's important that we understand that if we're to be blessed, if we're to be prosperous, if we're to be more than conquerors, if we're to take on challenges and win, if we're supposed to get this incredible life like David did out of 70 years, Solomon did out of 80 years, and accomplish so much and win and be happy and be joy-filled, if we're supposed to do all those things with the very short, brief life that we have and even the greatest years are full of trouble and pain, we're going to need an advantage for that. Do you agree? So if we are going to have a short life, and that short life is going to be filled with trouble, God, give me an advantage in it at least, at least an advantage. And God says, here's your advantage. I, the Lord said, will be with you. (laughs) You bringing a truckload of something, Lord? No. I'm just bringing me. And as long as I am with you, You now have an advantage to conquer every pain, every trouble, every heartbreak, every difficulty that's happening to you, even in the greatest years of your very short life. And then he tells us in Genesis, this is true, Genesis 39, verse 2, look at it on the side screen. The Lord was, everybody read this with me. The Lord was, so he, in what? 
He did. Then in the same chapter, a little bit later, talking about Joseph again, Genesis 39, 23, the Lord was and caused, he did to what? Ah. So here's the advantage. In your marriage, in your family, in your finances, in your health, in relationships, at work, when it comes to joy, when it comes to happiness, when it comes to hearts being broken in the past, here's your advantage. We've got to have Jesus with us. And no one else on this earth without Jesus, I don't care who they are, how much they make, or where they're living, is going to be able to enjoy a great life when their best years are full of trouble and pain. The only advantage we have is Jesus being, now here's the word, listen to me, with, with. What's that mean? He's going to be with us. Take you to Revelation chapter 2 now, and thus the candle. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. And guys, we do that here in our church. By the way, this is Jesus speaking to the churches. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. It is 42 years old, and he's talking to the people in the pastor there. And we do that here. We test things. We make sure that if there's a small group that picked a book up off the shelf and they really shouldn't be reading that in their small group because our pastors do not agree with it, it's not biblically sound, I mean, we'll call that book out. And we'll just, we will make sure that there's no false teaching going on. We never have a teacher get up here and teach you something that's not straight out of God's word and their opinions being given and all that. All these verses backing it up. It says, you have preserved and uh, persevered and you have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. You haven't quit. And then he says, and he says in verse, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other like you did at first. And then he said, consider how far you have fallen. You didn't lose this. You left this. It wasn't something that was taken away from you. You had it and you abandoned it, Jesus is saying. And he's saying, just challenge, if you would, your passion. And loving me first and foremost. And then he says, if you found out you've done that, then repent and do the things you did at, give me that word. If you do not repent, he says, I am going to come and I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place. Now, this is interesting. The seven golden lampstands talked about in Revelation chapter 1 and 2 were the seven churches. And the Bible says that Jesus dwelt among the lampstands, right? And so what Jesus is saying is this, if you don't love me, even though you're doing some great things, that's great. Even though you're, you're, you're staying in there, great. Even though you take a, a beating and you're still staying with you, you're not quitting, that's wonderful. I applaud all that. But if you don't get back to loving me first over everything else you're doing, I am going to remove my presence from this church. And I'm going to put it somewhere else. Now, what did we just say we absolutely had to have to have an advantage in this world? His presence. So more than anything else on this planet, we have to guard the presence of God in our life. Am I right? That's a true statement? Okay. So in other words, we've got to guard our passion. We've got to guard our passion. Mm. Mm -mm. Passion, number one, is a difference maker. Passion is a difference maker. I don't care what you have or what you don't have. If you got passion, you got the advantage. When I was 17 years of age, uh, there was a group of teenage boys in our church, and there was about eight or nine of us, and they were all between the ages of 16 and, say, 22. And we were the preacher boys of the church. In other words, we have publicly told people that, man, we have surrendered our life to preach. We're going to be a pastor. We're going to be a preacher. That's what we're going to do. And so we believed that we needed to learn as much as we can and start preaching immediately. And our mentors, the older guys, were saying, yeah, yeah, you need to start using that gift. You need to start, and they said, practicing your speaking. The problem is when you're 17 years of age and you don't have a message and you don't have any life experience, nobody wants to listen to you practice. 
So we started a ministry where we would go to rest homes. And somebody said, hey, there are a lot of rest homes. Have you guys noticed a new rest home that's just like one block north of the church? If you go on 24 Road, one block, there's a little rest home there on the left, and it's like a year old. Well, those are the kind of rest homes. And in Fort Worth, they're called retirement centers. They're called rehab centers. They're called adult care programs, whatever. We just called them rest homes because that's what they were. And people would go there, and they were all, you know, really, really old. And, I mean, really, really sick, some of them. And they needed care at all different degrees. But, but, but we would go, and, and I would be placed in, you're, I'm to go to this particular rest home this, this Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock, and I'm to be at the next rest home at 2 o'clock. So we created church services in the rest home. So, so we would go in, and the, the, the homes were already lined up. They already knew us because we'd been there. And a group of two of us would go in, this one, and a group of two would go in. There. And Anna, Anna had two girlfriends, and she sang in a trio with these girlfriends, and these teenage girls would drive to one of these different rest homes that they were scheduled at, and we would do a 20-minute service, 10 to 12 minutes of singing because the older people love the singing more than they love the teaching, and, and they love looking the older men love looking at those girls more than they love looking at me and so they could keep their attention and then we'd give eight minute message so that was our goal an eight minute message that would keep the attention and the truth of the matter is guys we were practicing and so every Sunday I would go at 17 years of age and I'd go to a different rest home and I would bring a message now I had one message I had one I got it out of a little black book of sermons for clergy and the message was how to have joy in your life Jesus first others second and yourself last if you ever hear a pastor preach that message, that is the oldest message on the planet, and he has nothing else to tell you. So I'm going in. I have no life experience. I have no teaching experience. I am scared to death, but, boy, I'm passionate. Man, I got passion. I would walk into some of those places, and after the first time I got my feet on the ground just a little bit, somebody would go to me and say, Hooper, you lead the singing. Now, I led the singing at 17 years of age. I grabbed a hymn book. We sang two songs out of that hymn book. We sang Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. We would sing, I surrender all. Oh, oh, man. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And I would squawk out that. Listen, and if Anna and the girls, other girls weren't there, oh, man, it was me, and then that guy would teach. And then we'd go to the next place, and he would lead the singing, and I would teach. And we would go into some of these places week after week after week, and all of a sudden, man, the, the nurses got to know us, and the caregivers got to know us. And the thing about me is that many of the other ones just kind of fell by the wayside. I kept going. And so I would go by myself, and I would lead the singing, and then I would teach. And, and as I would walk into some of these places, I'm walking down and go, hey, 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 everybody, it's church service time. Make it back to the cafeteria. Now, they just left the cafeteria. They were full, and they were sleepy. So I'd walk in, and I would walk up and down there. Hey, hey, guys, church service time, church service time. Come on, let's go to the cafeteria. And I will be honest with you, there were some people that were asleep in their wheelchair with their head on their chin in the hallway. And I'd walk up to them when nobody was looking, and I'd go, hey, yeah, you want to go to church service time, don't you? And I'd just push them flat out asleep. They'd wake up by an upright piano in the cafeteria, had no idea how they got there. And usually it was after my talk. <laughs> but, oh, man, I had passion. I didn't have any life experience. I didn't have any messages. But, man, I had passion. And when I would walk into some of those places, there was a, there was a, a 45, 50-year-old uh, uh, nurse that was in there, a black, heavy-set nurse. And I'd walk in, and she goes, oh, Preacher Dan's here. Preacher Dan's here. That's way back before there was a Lieutenant Dan. I was Preacher Dan. Nobody else was preacher anybody, but I was preacher Dan. You know why? Because I had passion. Passion when I didn't have anything else. And pretty soon before I know it, the nurses were helping me gather people, and, and all the caregivers, they start bringing people down there, and, and they're helping. There'd be four people there sometimes and three of them asleep. But now all of a sudden there's 15 and there's 20 being pushed back into a cafeteria for one reason and one reason only. I had passion, and passion is a difference maker. Now, this was a whole lot cuter at 17. You've got to imagine that. I said you had to imagine that. But I had passion. I had passion. When I was 23, turning 24 years of age, the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, Texas, had retired. 
And his son, my best friend, we both work for the church, his son, the youth pastor, took over as the lead pastor of the First Baptist Church, prestigious church in Fort Worth, Texas. A lot of history to it. He took over as the, the pastor. Now, the retiring pastor, the retiring pastor was teaching the auditorium Bible class. This was a group of people that were his peers, his age group, and they were 45 to 65 years of age. And when he retired, there's a class of 80, 85 year, uh, people, 45 to 65 years of age, who, 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 uh, who did not have a teacher. So I went to my friend who's not a lead pastor. I said, Bill, let me tell you something. I want that class. And he looked at me and said, you are crazy. I said, no, no, I want that class. And he said, can I remind you that those people have been studying the Bible more years than you've been on this planet? I said, I want that class. And really, it was a class that should have had a college professor from a local Bible seminary. They really should have. But I went in there, and I, I'm looking at them, and they're looking back at me. And I'm thinking, what am I going to tell you that you hadn't already heard? And they're thinking, what is he going to tell me that we hadn't already heard? Because I was the age of their youngest children. And they knew me because I grew up in the church. And they knew me because I was friends with their kids. But they didn't think I could teach them. And so I got in there and did a couple of generic messages to start with. Tried to be a little funny. And you know what I noticed about that room? They were sleepy. And they were quiet. Well, I cut my teeth on rest home ministry, so that didn't bother me at all. And then the next week... I studied 15 to 18 hours, and I would study 15 to 18 hours every week for the next eight years. And I walked back in there on my third Sunday, and God gave me this. I started teaching in the Bible book by book. I started in Genesis and broke down a summary of it, and in one week I taught them the entire book of Genesis, a summary of the beginning, the middle, and the end, who wrote it the year, the timeline in which it was written, and what were the number one stories in the book, and how they could turn to it and get to it and do that. That was Genesis, baby. And after Genesis, they're like, what? And the next week we did Exodus, and we took a summary through Exodus. In one week, 35 minutes, the whole book of Exodus, who wrote it, when it was written, who it was written to, who are the people, who are the main players, what happened in the first section, what happened in the middle, what happened in the third, and what's going to happen next? Genesis, Exodus, here come Leviticus. Leviticus is coming out. Who's going to talk about Leviticus in an exciting way? I am. I'm going to talk about Leviticus in an exciting way. I may not have a clue what I'm talking about, but it's going to be exciting. And before you know it, that 85 people turned into 120 and turned into 150. I went through the entire Old Testament of 39 books and then into the New Testament. I, uh, into the, New, the Old Testament of 37 books, into the New Testament of 29. I cut all 66 books together. It took about two years to get it done. Then I summarized the Old Testament. Then I summarized the New Testament. They're writing notes. We got notebooks being printed. They're going out all over the place. Everybody's talking. Over 200 people started packing out that class. And there was clapping and there was laughter and people started standing up, people slapping each other. All of a sudden, they woke up. You know why? Because one person had passion. That's all that made the difference. All that made the difference. At the age of 30 years old, 29, Ann and I moved our two young kids to Grand Junction, Colorado, away from everybody that we had ever known. I made her sell a brand new house. We just built her a brand new house. I just bought her a brand new car, and we sold it, put the money in savings, and came here and bought a place up on the ridges. And I remember, I remember as we got into town, we pulled into a little A-frame building over on 17th and Elm. Not very many parking places. And the worship center had been boarded up for a while, hadn't been used for a while. And I remember when I got here, I thought, man, I need some men. I need some good men around me. I had some good men. Listen, when I was back here in that Bible class, we went into that dead group, and we started activities. And here me and Anna were 30 and 29, and we were, we were the youngest by far. But we started having activity nights, game nights. We started having volleyball challenges. People started laughing, started getting to know each other, started picking on each other, kind of like we do around here. I, we went to Table Rock Lake. I said, all you men, and these were successful men that owned businesses and made good investments. And these, I said, I need everybody that's got a boat. Would you bring your boat to Table Rock Lake. 30 boats showed up. And we got there at 5 a.m. in the morning. And we would fish Table Rock Lake and we'd get all the sand bass and all the crappie we could get. The women and our kids and their grandkids would show up at noon. And we had a big old fish fry. And when it came time for us to leave, oh my God, I'm telling you, Ann and I love those old people. We loved them. 
and now we are them. <laughs> How did that happen so quick? We pulled into Grand Junction. We didn't have a sound system. We didn't have a stage. We, we didn't have that on the side screen. We had no cameras. We, we, we had very few people. Oh, my, my God, we had passion. And I remember Dan Cox came to me, and he said, Hey, Hooper, because I met him somewhere. He said, You that new pastor? Dad? Yeah, man, I'm the new guy. And Man, I think I was in a lumber store picking up some stuff to do the remodel. And he said, We do a ministerial alliance meeting around here. Have breakfast. Once a month, all the pastors get together. You want to come? I thought, oh, my God, I'm invited. I'm the new 30-year-old kid on the block, and I'm invited to the pastor's ministerial alliance meeting. These are all lead senior pastor dudes. Are you kidding me? So, yeah, I'm there. So it was in a little church. And so I, they told me where the church was. I found I think it was out in Orchard Mesa, a little cafeteria thing in the church, a little meeting room. So we met there. Some ladies were there serving up some runny eggs. Please cook your eggs. And crispy up your bacon, for God's sake. It's not a piece of ham. It's bacon. Crisp it. So I'm eating some bad food. But I'm so excited to be there. I'm so excited, y'all. I sit down at a table. Dan Cox is over there. He's the only one I knew. But I'm sitting there. I'm the youngest guy in the room, by far. And I'm sitting there at a table with Dr. Otis Testerman. Dr. Otis Testerman, the pastor of the Book Cliff Baptist Church here in town and chaplain of the police department. Everybody knew Otis. And I'm sitting there, and then Dan Cox stands up and says, Hooper, why don't you introduce yourself to these fellas? So I get up. I said, man, I'm Dan Hooper. My wife and I, we just got here. We're so excited. We're in that little A-frame building over there. We're getting a church going here. And, man, we're all about connecting the unconnected. So we're going after lost people. Hey, I'm not going after any of your members. Don't want them. Don't need them. We're going after all the lost people in the valley. Man, we're just going to go forward. We're going to teach them and you know, tell, them what, tell them about Jesus and help the families and their marriages and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, whoa, man, I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to be a part of you guys. And honest to God, I had a flashback of a rest home service. Not one person smiled. They didn't even try. So I sat back down. And none of these pastors got up and prayed for each other. None of them. They ate bad breakfast and left. And I thought, that's weird. But I, I was the new kid on the block, and I didn't want to start anything, so I just kept my mouth shut. And then Otis Testament leaned over to me and said, you want to have breakfast with me this week? And I thought, oh, my God, yeah, I'll have breakfast with you. So I went home and told Anna how excited I was. There's a pastor at the meeting, and she said, how'd the meeting go? And I said, well, we'll talk about it some other time. But there's a pastor that wants to take me to the village inn on North Avenue and have breakfast with me next week. He said, oh, honey, that's so good. I'm so proud that you're hooking up with some pastors. I said, yeah, I'm so excited. So I went to the village inn on North Avenue, the one across from the golf course. And I'm there very early in the morning, and I beat him there. I'm having my second cup of coffee before he walks in the door. And he walks in, and he sits down with me. And he starts telling me, okay, Hooper, let me tell you about Grand Junction. I've been here a while. He said, you cannot trust the economy in Grand Junction. Oh, let me tell you about the bus. Let me tell you about what happened when oil shale pulled out of here, and we lost families. And he said, I'd already heard that story 15 times, and I'd only been here two weeks. But I let him run it out again. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. I'm thinking, well, I still see houses, and there's still cars driving around, so there's got to be people that we can reach here. But I'm just being quiet. I'm just listening. And then finally at the end, he says, he said, I got one more thing I want to tell you. And I thought, here comes the encouragement. And this is exactly what he said. Pastor Hooper, or he called me just Dan. He just said, Dan, this is not Fort Worth, Texas, and this is not Denver, Colorado, and you do not fit here. And it hurt my feelings. And I went home and told my wife, and anytime somebody hurts my feelings, I'll be over it tomorrow. She'll get over it in 16 years. <laughs> but a few days later, I told Anna, I said, hey, guess what? I said, what? I don't fit here. And you don't fit here either. And come to think of it, I've been a misfit my entire life, everywhere that I have ever been. Everywhere. And we seem to have gathered together a whole bunch of misfits. 
you bunch of weirdos. You are not going to be settled and happy sitting in a Lutheran church or a Methodist church or any other dead church, and I doubt you're going to spend the rest of your life doing church services in a rest home anywhere. And then I told this to Anna. I said, listen, we are going to be fully in Grand Junction, but we will never let Grand Junction get in us, period. Period. <laughs> totally off subject. But I was talking to somebody the other day, and some people were standing around talking, and one, I heard somebody say, somebody say this, man, well, I hope that after the election, you know, the Grand Junction legalizes marijuana for recreational use. And I said, yeah, man, that's all we need. We need the more of the workforce of Grand Junction to be lethargic, sleepy, and apathetic on their job. That's what we need. Yeah, that's exactly what we need, more of that. Don't fit. Never have fit, but the first five years of Fellowship Church, we were the fastest growing church in a five and a half year period in a five state area here in Colorado. People started coming. And I promise you when I tell you this, we didn't have anything but passion. That passion for Christ kept the presence of Christ, which gave us everything else. I met a couple of guys 20 years ago. Randy Roman, where you at? Hey, hey, there you are over there. When you were younger, you used to stand up and do that. <laughs> but, dude, I met you and your wife and your kids when you first came into town. I don't know if you remember this or not, but you came in, I think, from Florida, Boca Raton or someplace like that. I don't know where you, someplace like it. But you came in, and I met you, and I what are you doing here, man? And you said, you said, let's start a chiropractic center. I said, oh, my gosh, you, you a doctor? Yeah, I'm a doctor. And then you wouldn't shut up for the next 30 minutes. I just ask you a simple question. What are you doing here? And health and health and body, body, body belongs to God. God made the body. God, God will fix the body. I think he gave me three coupons and I don't know what else. And I went home and said, I just met this incredible couple. And man, I don't know if he has a clue what he's doing. I do not know. But he will be the most successful chiropractic doctor in our city, bar none. Because he had passion. And he went from a little tiny, I remember your first office, that little old ratty fur of one store. You've been in that parking lot, and that was a ghost town. You went into a ghost town strip, strip uh, shopping center. A ghost town. And when you drove by it on 7th Street, the whole parking lot was empty except for in front of Dr. Randy Roman's office. It was absolutely packed. Passion. Passion. Eric Lusby, where are you? Eric, where you at, man? Oh, yes, you stand up. Well, you're a little younger than the doc over here. I, I met you. I met you, Eric. This is what I said about you. I don't know anything about Eric. I don't know anything about whether he knows what he's doing or not. But I can tell you right now, that man is going to be successful. And you know why? Because <laughs> he had passion. And don't tell me life hadn't beat you up along the way and tried to knock that passion out of you. And people try. <laughs> but you held on to it. You held on to it. And you endured and you persevered. And you kept your passion, and now your name's on a brand new office. Those are the biggest letters of a man's name I've ever seen anywhere in the office. <laughs> honest to God, honest, those letters are taller than you are standing straight up. I'm gonna... Wow. Passion's the difference maker. It's the difference maker. It's what keeps the presence of God in your life. And so the enemy's going after, guess what? passion 
Well, passion is a difference maker, but I'm going to tell you something about passion. You've got to keep passion in its proper place. And you guys are perfectly okay with me lighting this in here and putting that light right there on that wick. Because you're like, that's, that's a okay place for it. You've got to keep the fire in the proper place. You get fire outside of its proper place, you've got a problem. Man, you keep fire in the fireplace in your house, you're fine. You put it inside the kitchen cabinets, and you got an issue. So you guys are really good with me having passion and fire as long as I keep it in its proper place. But what if I take this fire and I lay it up aside of your hair? Amanda, come here. Let me, let me illustrate this. Come on. No? No? Because you're saying, I get it. Okay, Pastor, I get it. Pa passion has got to be in its proper place. And anytime you don't keep passion in its proper place, Jesus, passion in the wrong place will burn down your house and destroy everything you've ever had. And then here's one, the proof of passion. The proof of passion is perseverance. The proof of passion is seen in perseverance. Have you ever seen these television shows and right before the cutaway, here's a man and here's a woman, they meet in a bar, they see each other on the street, and all of a sudden they're fumbling, hanging on to each other, going up a staircase, and they're taking off their clothes. And right before the cutaway, man, they're, they're, they're taking off clothes, and blah, 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 blah. man, they're just all over each other, and you go, whoo, that's passion. That's not passion, that's attraction. Passion perseveres. Can I tell you what passion looks like? My mother's 87 years of age. I wrote her a letter the other day. I said, Mom, remind me, how many years were you married to Dad? She wrote back, 52. We were going for 100, but he chickened out. <laughs> and then in parentheses, she wrote these words. Your dad would have thought that was funny. <laughs> Love, Mom. Let me tell you what passion is. Passion is after 52 years of marriage when my dad was in a rented hospital bed where my mother's dining room table used to be and she would walk in there and take off his clothes to help bathe him because he couldn't do it anymore by himself. That is passion. That's passion. Some of you have lost it. You've lost it. And the scary thing is that it's the only advantage you're going to have on this planet. The short years that you're going to be here, it's the only advantage you have. Now, the cool thing about our Heavenly Father is that he said to this church at Ephesus, he didn't say, get it back. Get it back or I'm going to burn this church down. He did say, get it back or I'm going to stop paying the bills. He said, get it back or I am going to take my presence out of this place. You're either going to have me first in your life or you're not going to have me at all in your life. That's simple. That's simple. It's a difference maker, isn't it, Doc? It's a difference maker, isn't it, Eric? Amanda, it's a difference maker, isn't it? Can I tell you something about Amanda? Michael Mock left this church as our worship pastor and moved with his family to Colorado Springs. It's a positive move, all great. We all looked at Amanda, who was his personal assistant, and said, you can do this job. And there was a fear and a terror that came over her. She thought, I don't know, man. I don't really play instruments very well doodle on a piano but I can't I can't write music I don't really know how to arrange and at a God encounter don't make me cry <laughs> at a God encounter in the mountains 
the staff was worried whether or not we had a worship pastor or not. And Amanda was standing up on the stage with you, Joe, and with you, Julie, and she started to cry. And she got off the stage during worship. We're looking at her like, hey, you're doing your job. She walked off the stage. She got on the floor, and she lost it. Lost it. She stayed there for a while. And she got off the floor. And she walked back up on the stage. Knowing she didn't have anything else, she had passion. And that, and that alone, started bringing everybody she needed around her until she's become one of the greatest, best, loved worship pastors in our country. Stay standing with me. Stay, just keep on standing up. Because tonight you're getting your passion back. Tonight you're going to wake up the joy that you lost. You're going to wake up the happiness that's been gone. You're going to wake up that conquering spirit that all, 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 every time you try to do something for God, you have people trying to blow it out. Passionate people make sleepy people nervous. Because your passion shines a big light on the lack of their effort. So they get jealous, they get mad, and if they don't want to increase their passion, they try to put out yours. But some of you let them. Doggone it. Doggone it. In 27 years, I think two or three times, I slipped a little bit. It started looking like other pastors. I got a little tired and just and just cranked it back a little bit. I mean, people are still getting saved, but the the, 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 the wick just kind of went. It just it just went down to a little more than a smolder. Oh man! And then we fire that passion back up again, and people in Grand Junction started calling us a cult. Anybody hear it? Anybody hear it? Come on, you heard it. Some of you said it till you got here and got that rubbed off on you and you said, oh, no, no, they're not a cult. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, I remember when they are calling us a cult back on 29 Road. I just went with it. I said, yeah, yeah, but we only kill chickens one Sunday out of the month. Next, next Sunday's chicken killing Sunday. Y'all come, read the family. We're going to eat them after we kill them. Bunch of weirdos. All because of one thing. Passion. And God says this. You, go, you all go ahead. Do a lot of stuff. And you're doing some stuff right. You're enduring hardships. You're staying in there. Good for you. 27 years, good for you. But if you don't love me, when you had nothing, and now that you're significant, you're not passionate about me anymore. I'm leaving. And then you decide what it is you think you have left. It's a serious challenge. It's a serious challenge. To people that have had their heart broken, to people who've been disappointed, to people that have been lied to, to people who've been talked about, to people who've been ostracized. And all of a sudden you don't fit in, and you feel lonely when you don't fit in. So you try to start looking like everybody else and just lower the flame, lower the flame, lower the flame. And our Jesus says, No, you won't three groups of people in this church right now in this room three three groups 
There's those of us that are on fire for God and we love him right now more than we have ever loved him and we have never been more grateful to him for what he has done and what we are right now and this revival is about us pouring out our love to him and thanking him and Christmas was that way and Thanksgiving was that way and we love him more than we've ever loved him before in our entire life. Group one. Group two. Jesus has never been first in your life. You were saved, so as by fire, the book of Jude. But if Jesus were to say, return to the love you had for me at first, what would he really be getting? Take a look at what it means to put Jesus first up here. The first moments of every day, the first day of every week. Wait a minute, you want me to have waffles with you? I'm sorry, that's the Lord's day. I, I'm not going to go have waffles with you on the Lord's day. Why not? You know, come out of that. Well, no, you can come to church with me on the Lord's Day, and then we might go have waffles. And I really don't even know why I'm talking to you all about waffles. But at the same time, I'm not doing anything on the Lord's Day. Duh, it's the Lord's Day. I'm in my house of God, worshiping my Lord. And some of you, really, honest to God, some of you go three, three four weeks and not even go to church. But you've never had him. What in the world? When you got saved, he gave you a home forever and heaven, the greatest life you could possibly live, the greatest partner you could possibly have. How could you not be crazy, radically, passionately in love with him from day one? And if you slip, you slip. But at least on day one, you should have had it. Jesus' first, first moments of every day, first day of every week, first portion of every paycheck. Duh. Duh. These are duh things. And the first consideration in every life event. Should I date that person? Should I marry that person? Should I work here? Should I work there? Should I sell this house? Should I make that investment? Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's message at Fellowship Church. If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. The Bible says in the book of Romans, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can do that right now. I just want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are Lord, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again. And God, I thank you for that. I ask you now to be my savior, to guide my life, and to give me a home forever in heaven. And God, I ask you this in your precious son, Jesus Christ's name, amen. If you just prayed this prayer for the first time, or if you need prayer, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at 970-245-PRAY or at prayer at fellowshipgj.com. Thanks again, and we hope to see you next week.